Hey, this is Higher Peaks. This podcast is supported by our listeners on Patreon. There you can become a patron with options of bonus content, including behind-the-scenes posts, messages, pics, shorts, raw, unedited content, and even full episodes. You can influence future shows, have voting power, get exclusive rewards, and have patron-only giveaways. Become a patron now, and until April 30th on the Organ Love tier or higher, you receive a free pack of our private Crosses seed stock. See full details on our page at patreon.com slash organ rooted. Enjoy the show. For me personally, I was all about transparency. We had some values that we wanted to stand by, you know, integrity, bringing value to cultivators. And, and I wanted to talk about what we were doing. I didn't think there was any uh, risk. I, uh, let me say, I didn't really care. <laughs> if I'm helping cannabis cultivators, let's help them. Let's talk to them. Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. All right. How's everybody doing stuck in their home? Oh, Peachy. Oh, you're not asking me. Right. It must feel like you get out because <laughs> you get to go to work still. Essential services. Yeah, but I'm still stuck inside. A building, yeah. Because it's been still super busy and now we got to do the whole segregated crap. Right before the show, we were just talking about, you know, having access to cannabis. And like, I think that's pretty much what a lot of us are doing is mm-hmm. cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we'll end up reading an, a small little snippet on the percentages, but snippet. we were just talking about Colorado, actually. They're now going to release home deliveries. Mm-hmm. I did see that one. and uh, But they're also talking about at one point closing dispensaries down. I'm curious about that home deliveries, if, they ha- if it's county by county there like it is here. Because that's why... Yeah, municipality um, and county, yeah. Yeah, that's one reason why we cannot, like as Talent Health Club, for example, cannot deliver to anywhere because the fact that there's, you know, multiple dispensaries in Talent, but you can only do it to your city. Yeah, absolutely. And that it goes back to even if it's federally legal, you know, cities and states can make things illegal. Yeah, and I think mostly, I don't know what it is, but it is certainly we could, for sure, we could not deliver it even to Phoenix, and that's just the next town over. It's crazy times. I I just know that I think that if they got rid of cannabis in any areas that have it at least medical or better, are probably going to have a hard time. I mean, mm-hmm. you're going to have either black markets can explode again. Or crime is. I mean, yep, one of the two. People are going to be grumpy. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so. Come on, we already see. <laughs> Did you see that guy on the bicycle last week when I was leaving for work? Yeah, he was pacing in front of our neighbor's house. Oh right, yeah. Like seriously, going back and forth about six times before I left. <laughs> it right. was pretty humorous. Right. With a boombox on his on his bike. 
just this, going back and forth. There, there is like a typical look <laughs> of people that like go around and steal shit. <laughs> or maybe it's just our neighborhood. I don't know. Uh, well, and it's, we know that, you know, it was over across the street. It was at the dealer's house. So <laughs> we know for yeah. lots of years of living across the street, what's happening. But good thing is we're getting into at least longer days in mm-hmm. summer. Uh, I bet everybody's out there probably gardening. I, I, I am, you know, that's what we're starting. We just started germinating and yes, we are behind compared to the years past, but I think we're just fine, but we are germinating. We got like 10 or 11 strains. I don't know that all those will come to fruition or we'll stay in our, in our growing areas. Um, but we'll see. Um, mm-hmm. I do know we put in basically a new strain, the, uh, uh ripcord, right. The F2s. So thank you, JB <clears throat> organarchist. Uh, we've been waiting a year to put that in. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'm going to run the Plumberry Kush. Almost and, exactly a year. Yeah, exactly. I got them 420. Yeah. So, but I'm going to run the Plumberry Kush and I'm going to run the, um, the Rosaberry again, but I'm going to be more selective on those this year. The Plumberry didn't come to all the way. We only kept, I only kept the mail last year. Mm-hmm. A couple of them got hit with rust. The others went away as well. And all I had was the mail. So this year I'm going to select for a nice female. Cause we crossed that male last year. And so I'm, this year I'm going to select for a nice female. And then same with the Rosa Berry. The one I ended up with last year was a great, great plant, but man, it was not a pheno of that, that I would have picked for where I was growing it. Mm-hmm. It got too tall. That is the one that smelled super funky and that's our CBD one, right? Yeah. And it smelled really good though. I really like the funk it smells like. I do like, too. I love the smell. It's a sweet funk. It is. That's it. And it's start that's starting to be a thing is funky, yeah, right? Yeah. So, I, so I'm interested in that one this year, especially actually doing an intentional pheno hunt on that one. I have had good results from people who have smoked that. Yeah, absolutely. Kristen said she really mm-hmm. enjoys it um, because she has anxiety and being. I don't know if was it a two to one. It generally tested at that. Yeah. Okay. Could be a so one it's, to one, but it's, it's, like it's generally a, a two ba- to one. It's basically like 15, 16% THC to like three, 4% CBD. Five, six, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Uh, I'm sure that changes depending on the phenos though and the environment, but in right. general, it seems to be around there. So I would call it a high CBD myself. Right. Uh, I don't like the real high CBDs, you know, that doesn't... No, I, I need a that little That gets THC. sent to the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the balance of those beans, though, are going to be our crosses. The one I want to focus on is the Plum Choco. And that one, the reason that's why right, is because... The... Well, because I selected a really nice female. The female was a early flowering uh, pheno of it. And it was a really nice, tight, stout grower. Great for what we like. And it has a good lineage. It's the, it's the Chocodile. It's called Chocodile. And it was a cross of the Chocolope. These are classics. Chocolope crossed with LA Confidential and New York City Diesel. So re- really good lineage there. And then we crossed that with the Plumberry Kush, that, that strong just popping male that we had. So that's the Plum Choco there. Yeah. Uh, that's what we're going to call it. And that's what we're going to, I'm really going to be focused on testing this year. I just want to get a good pheno and see how it comes out. I want to see if it's herming, but what else are you guys doing out there? I imagine they're, you know, everybody else out there is growing, uh, at least doing their garden. We're going to do vegetables, flowers, all kinds of shit. In fact, that reminds me, I've got some, uh, some stuff to put in. Yeah. We got like a whole seed bank going. I, um, realized that I might have a little bit of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> 
with collecting seeds. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, not cannabis seeds, but I do collect those too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I find myself collecting more variety. And now we have those mini melons. Those are going to be fun. Cucamelons. 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 I don't know. They are cool. I've seen. I'll call them cucamelons. I've seen some of these. <laughs> I've seen some of the cannabis farmers out there doing that. Cu- cu- cucamelon or whatever would you call it? Cucamelon. 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 Yeah. Like a cucumber. <laughs> You're supposed to pickle them, I guess. Looks like a little tiny watermelon, tastes like a pickle or a cucumber. Really cute. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, everybody should have a seed bank. I'm glad that you are a hoarder when it comes to seeds. I mean, in the times like we're looking at now, Mm -hmm. you know, we do have a bank and we have a bank both of cannabis seeds and, you know, and we're growing that. And we also have a bank of not only wildflowers, Mm -hmm. uh, Echo, thank you for that. We also have a collection of uh, good vegetables and such. Yeah. So we're hitting it hard, probably like you guys out there doing it um, this year. Uh, all right, well, let's get into the news. Uh, I, you know, the DEA just popped their heads up. Uh, they, you know, they keep hiding shit, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I guess some scientists are suing the DEA. Uh, it's over some alleged use of a secret law. There was some sort of international treaty, apparently, that they said they're, they're, these people have been trying, these scientists have been trying to get access to do research, a- access to to grow cannabis and, and research it. Mm-hmm. And the feds have been, you know, slow to do. And so they pushed them to court and they gave a response that there's a certain treaty law that no one was aware about, apparently, that they're in, that prevents them from uh, moving forward unless they take all of ownership. So... They'll have farms that grow it for them. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll have multiple farms. And this is because of this treaty law. So what they have to do is they say they have to be the sole owners. So they'll have these farms that they select that will grow. Then that cannabis gets sent to them. They'll be sole owners of that and then can sell it to researchers. Funny how that works. So like Don Julio. So they so they want to put this as a rule, right? And a law. And But they're doing it under pretense of this a secret treaty that was never talked about and supposedly is preventing them from moving forward unless they make this a law international. So treaty. now they're, they're back in court, uh, making them bring this law out under the, uh, you know, the, um, the fair in, the information act. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and once they bring that out, they're going to see if they actually, you know what they're actually going to do, right? What? They're going to give it all printed out with it all blacked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly how they do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's, here's the paper. Here Half of go. it's blacked out. <laughs> That's so true. Like every line, but like three <laughs> words is blacked out. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys. Just get over it. Obviously, they, they, they want full control. We get it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but you have to do it under false pretense. So government of you. So, and then skipping over to psychedelics real quick at the top of the list, Washington, they, uh, they're trying to, they're hardest, they're damnedest to get finished getting their signatures. They're close, not as close as Oregon is, but they've been really pushing and how they want to do it is possibly moving forward with micro scale petitions. I had never thought of this, but apparently they want to send these ballots out, official ballots to these people at their homes. And then hopefully these people around their homes will do, will fill up this micro ballot, you know, 10, 15, 20 signatures, whatever. I don't know how much. And then send them back in to keep collecting those signatures. Hopefully it works. I know with this virus that all these, 
all these gathering of signatures have basically shut down. Yeah. Now with Oregon, and this will cover two, uh, two of the news stories, but Oregon has slowed down quite a bit as well. Now they are sending out ballots to get signed, or you can go on, excuse me, take that back. You can go on their website and download a ballot to sign and then send back to them. Um, so people are encouraging Oregon to do that, to keep that going. I will say this, they think they've said that they've gathered enough signatures. Again, we talked about this right. a couple, two, three, four weeks ago has not been officially counted yet. So, you know, it, hopefully we're there. Uh, if not, they're still pushing forward. It's just, you have to download that from the website and that's decriminalized nature's website. And also having to do with that, Oregon Democrat con uh, congressional candidate Blair Reynolds urged people to sign that petition for proposed therapeutic psilocybin legalization ballot measure. Yeah, so we have people up a little bit higher. Uh, yeah, yeah, that are really wanting people like, you know, sign it. They want you to sign it. So that's pretty cool I, to I, know that. Yeah, and I really hope that people don't. I hope that there are certain things that continue moving forward in the midst of all this yeah pandemic crisis i hate to see things just stall and not move forward whatever it is if it's something positive i hate to see it get stalled you know things like paychecks that's a bitch yeah <laughs> for sure for damn sure massachusetts they're allowing curbside pickup we talked about colorado they're uh allowing delivery now oregon generated more than 9.2 million in marijuana tax revenue for the state and an additional more than 1.4 million for local governments in February. Yeah, well done, Oregon. That's one month and that's kicks ass. Yeah, yeah. So now, now's the time, Oregon, to share that back with us. Y'all not using it for education because that's all shut down. It's, well, they are buying our, or they are getting Chromebooks for everybody. Yeah, that's got to be a big And they're thing. not to keep. No, I'm sure. I wonder if those so, are being loaned out like in mass to the schools. I don't know. Um, if so, that's really cool. It would be. But yeah. um, I do know that they do need to be checked out. And I'm just waiting for the email that says I got to go pick them up for our girls. I don't know how the other states are going about it out there because I know obviously it's a it's a location thing. But that's great to have at least our area. I don't know if all of Oregon's doing that. Maybe. But Maybe. I know our area is actually, you know, like you said, getting these laptops are going to start doing some online learning, which yeah. is pretty damn cool i mean which is actually a classroom like the parents have to make sure it gets done and have to sign by the end right. of the week and so i know there's extra responsibility but damn that's still way far from full-on homeschooling right all right to jump down to science and health a study found that the combination of cbd and bacitracin bacitracin which we did look up bacitracin <laughs> Is suggested to be putative novel treatment in clinical settings for treatment of infections with antibiotic-resistant gram-positive bacteria. So, I mean, that's great. Yeah. It's it's a synergistic uh, one-two combo. Yep, right. A study of toxicology tests of women admitted to hospital labor and delivery units concluded that prevalence of cannabis use until the time of delivery vary by location, but were largely unchanged over a period of drug liberalization. That's cool to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning that these women were consuming it just as much as, you know, now as they were before, uh, just they're more open about it now. I wonder if I was in that testing. I would hope so. That'd be uh, cool because they did come and talk to me. Uh, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, you know, we had a sit down, what, a, within 
24 hours it was of birth? the next morning yeah after so less she was born. even yeah. less interesting to say the least but it it was concluded in the um idea that she was there for just information yeah, she she did tell us personally that she did not want to have to that they want to stop doing this when it comes to cannabis. Right, right. So, so good job, women, and good for sticking to your guns, but also being honest. You know, take a stand. Um, I know that there's probably some states out there you probably do not want to take that stand yet, but when it comes time, you know, take that stand just so we can get it, the normalization of it. Like, let's get it normalized. It's it's yeah. something that. They, they say it's okay for you to drink a glass of wine, but they don't okay you to drink to have some cannabis. Yeah. When honestly, cannabis would help any of the symptoms that you may have. Well, and so that's a good point: is that there's all different kinds of methods, and there's all different kinds of cannabis use. So, I think at minimum we need to have some research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So really, minimum is education. Oh, well, I should say research then education. So. Yeah. This will be a good one to end with. A poll of U.S. adults who use marijuana found that 28% have consumed more than usual in the past two weeks. Hmm, I wonder why. <laughs> 14% have used less, which means they probably are broke. Tightwad. Just kidding. <laughs> no, they're broke. <laughs> just kidding. Completely just kidding. Uh, and 36% have seen no change, so they're just trudging along. That's cool. Maintaining. Which a lot of people have come in and just bought their normal amount. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling bad for the 14%. Uh, the 28% that's consuming more. I think I might be in that <laughs> that percentage. I have been smoking a lot more blunts lately. You know, and who cares if it's if it's keeping you sane? I mean, it's if, if you're drinking a lot of alcohol and you're drinking tw- and 28% of you are drinking more now, I feel bad for your kids and your wife. That is an essential it's liquor stores <laughs> don't know how yeah. but okay all right let's move on now i brought on colin bell from mammoth p and this is you know an interview that should have happened maybe 40 episodes ago <laughs> uh we've been using mammoth p on our garden for a long fucking time for years and at least since 2015 and that was before the show started I think so, we've been using SLF and Mammoth P as both. long as we have grown together. I think the same year. Yeah, right. Because we got it at the Indo Expo. Right, right. And we've used both with success. I, I've been meaning to talk with Colin for all this time, uh, but I finally got to sit down with him and we had a great talk, not just about Mammoth P. I mean, we did talk about the product, the new biocontrol. We talked about Mammoth P itself. I also addressed some very tough questions with him about the Mammoth P mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, there's some PGR issues that people ask about, some questions. Uh, there's also some other directed questions that people that are, you know, skeptical Mm-hmm. Uh, are really always bringing up. So I address those questions in this interview and I hope that people get some sort of information out of that. Uh, this is a personal preference though and I love them. I mean, for our outdoor grow, it works awesome. Right. And I've had nothing ever bad come out of it. And, you know, being what it is and the knowledge I have of it, I'm very confident in the product. This new biocontrol we're trying this year, I'm excited about. Another thing that people talk about, you know, it's, it's an extract of thyme oil, mm-hmm. um, but there's some method behind that madness. And so it's not just thyme oil, which is one of the biggest questions. You know, why can't I make my own thyme oil? Well, you can, but there's some science behind what they put in the bottle. He talks about that a little bit too. 
But aside all that, I get to know Colin and ask other deeper questions about things and talk about some really cool subjects. So I hope everybody enjoys it. And uh, even if you don't use Mammoth P, it's a good episode to uh, to listen to because mm-hmm. we do talk about some science on, you know, bacteria, uh, biodynamic growing, um, scientific. I didn't even know that you could pheno hunt bacteria. <laughs> makes sense, though. Yeah, it does make sense. You could pheno hunt humans. I, I, agreed. I guess anything that evolves. <laughs> I life, want the best one. Yeah, life that evolves, I guess it creates... <coughs> some sort of phenos, right? I just didn't think of it that way. And, and, and that was part of his, his education in life was actually pheno hunting bacteria, which I think is pretty freaking cool. But with that said, I hope you enjoy the show. Now, before we start though, I want to shout out to two things. One is, uh, IG. I haven't, you know, blasted anybody out yet in terms of like a good page, but if, if I haven't said it before, sustainable planet. So for people out there, look up at sustainable planet that IG page rocks. They're actually a soil testing company that do some great work. But aside from that, the information on their IG is just incredible. They have a fact Friday you can't miss. It's awesome stuff. So check them out. Also to Onion Grill, um, shout out to you, brother. I said we would. Now, when we did the uh, interview with Colin, I had put out a um, post on her story about questions people wanted to ask Colin. And we got a bunch of questions in, and out of them we picked this gentleman's. Nice. So I use him, ask him, uh, ask Colin a direct question for Onion Grill, and we appreciate you, brother. Thanks for being a part of that. And thanks for winning. I did send him a package. Yes, so you did. You got some Mammoth P samples and a shirt and shit like that. So, again, we appreciate you. Shout out. A shout out to him on the interview, too. All right. So we appreciate everybody. Conserve your toilet paper. And when you get that 1200 bucks, I think is what it's supposed to be, man. That's... For I adult. Guess, don't spend it all on weed. Actually, you should. And then use, you know, rags for toilet paper. Organ love. Organ love. Stay rooted. Yep. So my name is Colin Bell. I am the co-founder of Mammoth Microbes. I'm also now titled, I'm, a, I'm the co-founder of the company, but I'm also an employee of the company. I have sort of a role other than just a figurehead. Right. <laughs> I'm officially the chief revenue officer for our company now which means I'll lead the sales and marketing efforts for the company. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Initially, you guys developed or started developing Mammoth P um, at Colorado State? Yep, that's absolutely right. You know, we have a, a story. Um, it's so funky. I mean, I'm a co-founder, so I kind of do whatever I'm asked to do or what requires what the company requires of me sure. at any one time. So what? Uh, but, uh, you know, I have a PhD in microbiology, environmental microbiology, and I'm really a scientist. <laughs> I'm leading the sales and the business aspects of the company now. So, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I'm, I'm a generalist. I'm good at a lot of things. But honestly, I'm a great student. I can learn very well. But at the university, as a research scientist, is when uh, we were doing basically fundamental research, like any academic institution would, our speciality is focused on plant microbe interaction. And understanding the importance of how microbes facilitate plant success, plant health, plant resilience, different climate change scenarios. So my background in environmental microbiology was all prefaced on environmental conditions and how environmental selection changes or influences biodiversity for both plants and soil microbes. So taking that research into the university, we worked for five years from 2010 to 2015, basically working on the same stuff 
ultimately thinking about ways we could be more, make more of an impact uh, for society, bringing value with our academic knowledge right now, instead of just kind of writing papers, which we were very successful doing and getting grant money, which we were very successful doing. That's when we came up with the idea as a team, me and my co-founders, to start developing microbial solutions for targeted precision uh, functionality that farmers could use to enhance their crop quality and yield, uh, you know, globally. We wanted to feed the world naturally and sustainably using microbial technology. Uh, what, when did you really come out of the gate with the Mammoth P? Was that like in 14, 13? So, yeah, that's, that's a good point. So I left the university in March 2015. So we're really going to have our five-year 2016. Well, sorry, our, it's going to be a five-year anniversary. So March okay. 16th, this year is going to be a five-year anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. We came up with the thought to do something different at the very end of 2014. Sorry, 2013. At the very end of that year, and I started working on developing Mammoth P at the very beginning of 2014. Developed the product actually pretty quickly and then tested it on a lot of crops, started working on business models, understanding the best place for it, and, and understanding uh, what, you know, agriculture segments would accept it uh, from a young startup and all these lots of details. When the startup, we went through the startup gig and, and understanding we were just academics and we didn't know much about anything <laughs> when it came to businesses and markets. We learned a lot. And Ultimately, we, we identified cannabis as a wonderful opportunity to bring value to growers, developed a business model around that, and I uh, hit the gate in 2015, uh, getting ready to leave the university, left the university in March 16, 2015, and the goal was to scale up uh, production, manufacturing, uh, ramp commercialization, and start getting customers. And understanding, you know, how, how, how to develop a business, to start a business. And sure. we did. And so I left the university, just me, uh, got a bunch of used brewery equipment from my Craigslist and started making Mammoth P in a little one car garage. Oh my gosh. Seriously. It was kind of a wreck, but I was like, man, if we can do it here, we can do it anywhere. And I was, you know, just go for it. And so batch one, lot number one. And lot number two and lot number three of Mammoth P were literally developed in a rent house in a little one-car garage that I turned into a bioproduction bio facility. We quickly scaled in, into a little transmission shop because I ran out of space. And so I got a 1,200-square-foot transmission shop that I leased. My son and I cleaned it out. We painted it, scrubbed all the grease off, and turned that into a bioproduction facility number two, you know, making making batches of Mammoth P. You know, we went from... A 22 gallon per meter to like 120 gallon per meter, and and then we started trying to replicate that, and it was a lot of fun. At that time, I hired a intern in the fermentation sciences department at Colorado State University to help me, and he thought I was completely insane, but he didn't care. He's like, "Yeah, let's go for it. This sounds like fun." <laughs> and then I hired a, a, our first group of our first teammates uh, in the company doing a Craigslist deal. We still have several of those folks with us today, which is amazing. It seems like you guys got some really good employees and you've made some good decisions on that part of it. Yeah. I noticed that when you guys did come out, you guys came out not really afraid of marketing towards the cannabis culture. I'm, is that 
because of Colorado or was it because you saw it being something that was coming up in the market? A lot of people even to this day are a little bit, you know, not quite as, as, uh, as forward as you guys have been when it comes to that marketing. Yeah. You know, uh, there was conversation and some of the, we have some early stage investors and some of the business folks and you don't know what you don't know. For me personally, I was just like, I was all about transparency. We had some values that we wanted to stand by, you know, integrity, bringing value to cultivators. And, and I wanted to talk about what we were doing. I didn't think there was any uh, risk. I, let me say, I didn't really care. <laughs> If I'm helping cannabis cultivators, let's help them. Let's talk to them. You know, I thought it was crazy, and, and I get it, but when I was going to the, and it's a joke now, but remember when you used to go to the grow shop and, you, and you're growing tomatoes, quote unquote? Sure. All the magazines are talking about, like, Max Deals. That's not really there anymore. It was the biggest tomatoes. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And and I get, I get the pressure, and, and there's still some risk, but I don't think of it as a risk. I think about doing what you say you're going to do. Yeah. Well, and it's really shown, I mean, you guys have had a big impact. I mean, I can remember in 2015 hearing about you guys all over, um, you know, people using you for the plants, uh, especially home growers and stuff. I mean, did cannabis have any effect on your life before this all came to fruition or is it just something you've never, I mean, where did you stand with cannabis before? So I grew up in West Texas uh, and I'm older now. But I was a huge advocate of the cannabis community in general. And I was on, and when I grew up, where I grew up in West Texas, there's two groups of people. There was the rockers and there's the country guys. And the rockers were kind of the hippies and kind of the cannabis enthusiasts, so to speak. Uh-huh. And the Bud Light drinkers and the cowboys were the cannabis haters and the hippie haters and the Coors Light drinkers. Sure. <laughs> I, was, I was on I was on the cannabis side. Okay. You know, I took all the time and I enjoyed it and it was just one of these things. It was part of my rearing. My two brothers were hippies, older brothers, seven and nine years older from Illinois, and they come down every summer and they're my half brothers and they spend the summer with, with our at our house with uh with my dad. My dad's first kid. And every year we every summer we grow plants. And, and they'd leave them with me when they left and like, Colin, don't you kill it this year. And I didn't know what I was doing. I would kill plants all the time. It was just, you know, it wasn't very good anyway. But so I was immersed in it probably since I was seven years old at that level. That probably led into what you're doing now in terms of all of the agricultural stuff that you're doing, right? I mean. Well, yeah, but it was broader. My parents were fanatically crazy gardeners, like obsessed. Our whole yard would get tilled up and they would plant gardens. And I was, as a young man, I was in the, and a boy, I was either the tiller or the hole digger or the raker. I was like the major labor guy. And so it was, but you know, I do it today. It's something that is ingrained with me. I'm an avid gardener. I love working in the soil. And honestly, there's something about it. I'd get all my free money weed or all my, all my allowance money. It's like, I'll, I'll go work in the garden bed. I'll go weed or whatever. So it's just something that I would have, that I gravitated towards. So it was that it was also, you know, I'd get in trouble from time to time as a young man that were rambunctious. And I wouldn't say that cannabis and my lifestyle had nothing to do with it. It was all kind of wrapped up into one, but moving forward, it's about the passion for the soil, the passion for gardening. You know, we have accumulation of experiences, which make us who we are now. And as we gain more experience, it kind of uh, paves the path 
of where we go. I like to think that at least it, it makes sense to me. And all these accumulations of experiences kind of just led where this was. I ended up ultimately becoming a scientist. You know, at one point in my life, I didn't think I was going to go to college. End up getting a PhD in microbiology and really finding a passion in soil science. And so it all came together. And I had this history in my teens and 20s and, and whatnot of being a kind of a rebel and a huge advocate of the cannabis industry in general. And all of a sudden, my science brought me back full circle to engage in a cannabis industry. So I thought it was a, it was a pretty fun, uh, loop that I took from young man that was just kind of find his way, did one of everything, ultimately went back to school, found a real passion in soil microbiology, environmental microbiology, uh, did some very interesting things with the federal government, got some federal grant dollars to start bringing value to farmers to really use microbiology and farming and realizing that the cannabis industry is what kind of in who are is the community that embraced us in our technology right and so that's what we focus on that's crazy so i imagine that you've been organic since the beginning though <laughs> i mean with your family being that way i mean it, it was probably right in line with your values all the way through college and developing mammoth and i, I think so you know it's always one of these things where the organic practice i don't know if we were really my parents were pretty liberal they were professors and and so I grew up in this environment, which was, um, I would just say liberal to say the least, but we mulched and we cut the grass and we put that back in. So it was more of a practice. I don't know if we ever, back in the day, I don't know if organic was a word back in the seventies. I don't remember hearing that or in the eighties when right. whatever, but we did what we did. We sure. mulched things. We chopped things up. We got a little wood chipper and we chopped all the branches and we put it back in the ground. My dad used to buy like truckloads of sawdust. And, and I would till it in the ground. So we, we kind of compost the soil as we we're making the beds through the yard. So we did all these things. And in reflection, yeah, all those practices fit right in with how I think about growing. And, and those practices fit right in with like the living soil and the recycling and the organic related practices. Absolutely. Which is, you know, I, I, I'm sure you know Oregon, but Oregon's huge on those things. Uh, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, you got to be careful if you're not, you know, I, the, the term's gotten kind of diluted, but uh, if you're not organic here, you kind of get, you got to be careful. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that. I was thinking that would be a big deal for everybody. And yeah. as we started the company, and I was, you know, I was the inventor. I'm the guy that invented Mammoth Tea, made it to university, then left the university to start the company, scaled it up. And and I became our first outside sales guy too. So I'm out knocking door to door at our grow shops, just like everybody else is a rep. Yeah. Trying to sell microbes, becoming a door to door micro salesman and, uh, getting the samples out. And I thought for sure in Colorado, it was a big deal. And I used that as like, Hey, this is organic. You're going to love it. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, the growers in Colorado, they're like, so what's it going to do for me? What's it going to, you know, like right. the yield stuff. And so that was the message. I was like, ah, okay. So it's not that. At the time, I'll say, I think it's grown in popularity, not as important as just pushing the weight. And that was the stage of the industry also. Then later on in 2015 and very early 2016, we started getting some adoption in Washington and Oregon. And as I was touring, then I'd go over and start selling microbes in those regions. Every store you'd walk into, that's the first question they asked. Is it organic? If you can get out of here if it's not organic. And so I realized in the West Coast. It's completely important and in Colorado, in California, forget about it. 
you know, it's important. Oh, yeah. Well, everything causes cancer in California. It's almost now I see that CDFA listing is has gotten pretty important for everybody anywhere. (laughs) Not not just in California, but um, so correct me if I'm wrong. Now, once you made Mammoth, is that kind of what led into making Grosentia? Grosentia is the name of the company. Okay. And so this technology, once we decided to launch or create a startup, we decided on Grosentia. And Grosentia was something like we asked, we came up with five names. We did a poll across the, the department at Colorado State University. Which one do you like? And so Grosentia kind of stuck and it's cool. And so that was just like a parent company. And then we were trying to find a brand name for the product and coming up with a lot of different things. And, and believe it or not, I got outvoted. Me and a guy that I was working with in the industry, he said, Mammoth, Animal Cell, Mammoth is cool. I love Mammoth. He was totally fascinated by it. And I, and I immediately gravitated towards it because I thought, uh, I thought it was clever because they're microbes and they're invisibly small, you know, microscopic and they call a microbe Mammoth. I thought, oh, that's kind of funny. Uh-huh. Mammoth microbes because they're very, very small, but then they give this Mammoth function. And there's just something really fun about the whole thing. Well, we went with Elevate because we are too scientific and, it was like, well, we're elevating P. Let's call it elevate P. And so I was like, okay, fine. And uh, I'm glad we ended up not going that direction. But we we went pretty far down the road. I got labels. They looked pretty nice. We were getting ready to launch Elevate P. And, uh, and no one really knows this story. So this is kind of insider stuff here. Thank you. And then at the very last minute, we're like, well, let's make sure we do a trademark search. Because that's where we were. We were just like, well, let's just do stuff and, yeah. and kind of. So we were half in it, but, you know, we're a startup. There's a lot going on. And the last minute we realized there's uh, uh, the elevated Orkin company, that nutrient company, mm-hmm. the elevated nutrients company in Oregon. Yeah. I think that's what it's called. Elevate Organics. Elevate Organics. Thank you very much. And, and then I was like, wait a minute. And someone brought that up. And so we actually got a trademark attorney to, <laughs> to ask the opinion before we launched. And he's like, yeah, that's a problem. Can't uh, do it. And so I was like, all right, guys, Mammoth it is. Back off. I'm going with Mammoth. And we went with Mammoth. And, you know, how iconic. And so life is so serendipitous, I'll say. And you just never know how you get there. And some things just happen. You know, good things happen to good people. And Mammoth, luckily, stuck. So I love it. Yeah, and it's unique. And uh, it's it's got a bold statement to it. I, I am surprised that you didn't run into problems with mammoth because it seems like that term is used quite a bit kind of everywhere as well. True. So that's what I learned about trademarking. So trademarking is uh, subject to specific industries. And so you could, you have to trademark whatever word or whatever, you know, trademark you want to do mm-hmm. within specific industries. And so there's a mammoth clothing line, which is mammoth in Espanol. Right. And so we couldn't be mammoth clothing. They had the trademark for clothing, whatever, apparel, whatever the, the code is. But there wasn't a trademark for mammoth uh, agriculture input. Ah. And so we were able to capture that thing. And that's where we were anyway. So it's perfect. And now there's like a mammoth extraction lab and there's a mammoth biosciences. You look now, there's mammoth everywhere. Yeah. Maybe it was there before. <laughs> but yeah, I think mammoth is... Starting to get overused, probably. <laughs> we'll have to come up with something cool for the next one. 
It happens. It happens, especially with good yeah. ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Can we talk about Mammoth real quick? What, sure. A couple of things I wanted to point out. We've been using you guys since, well, for five years. Okay. Three of them on the podcast. We've had really good success using it. Now, our space where we're at is we're kind of the backyard banger, if you will. Uh, we grow anywhere between like four to 12 plants. And so Mammoth fits us real well, uh, you know, for what our scale of how we use it um, and the results we get has been really, really good. And yeah. just just so you know, I have a couple of questions from listeners uh, that relate to that. But um, so from our standpoint, we've had quite a long history now, or at least a decent amount of history with it and had some really good results and we still want to keep using it. There's some key things that I think that people don't talk much about. So we know that it enhances or it increases the intake of pee and what micronutrients as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed that when I use it, it has really beefed up my roots. I don't know if that's coincidental or if you've heard anything on that. Have you heard? Yeah, we hear it from everybody. Okay. And even back in 2016, folks were throwing out YouTube videos where they were doing head-to-head bone egg versus mammoth pee. You can't stop it once it gets going. Mm-hmm. And mammoth, in many cases, I was I was using Clonex when I was growing with mammoth tea, and without just to do a trial. So I was just uh, kind of satiating my scientific curiosity: would it be good as a rooting stimulant? Also, partially because phosphorus is important during the rooting stage, and if you can enhance the phosphorus uptake and just engage those plants early on, it made sense. It was worth trialing, and I saw significantly more root biomass after about a two-week period. And we see that across the board. A lot of propagators are using mammoth. It's a very easy thing to use. 0.6 mil per gallon is completely scalable. We seem to see consistently faster roots, more root biomass. And something that's anecdotal, clone vigor, which, you know, I hear it all the time, the clones just seem to pump. They're healthy and they're happy with that, with a little microbial additive, uh, the mammoth pea additive. So it's, it's consistent with what we've seen for sure. Before I used it, I would, I had some pretty healthy roots cause I was using, you know, mycorrhizae and I was using other inoculants. But when I started using the mammoth pea, I almost started getting like, uh, such dense root zones that it almost become, <laughs> it becomes it just a one solid thing. And it's not root bound. Um, cause I get it with all, whether I'm running a 50 gallon or I'm running a 35 or I'm running a 20 or 15, it happens with whatever I'm running, but it just seems like it gets so dense and I like it. It makes it really structurally, like I can get really big wins and, and I can go through some serious hits with pests and stuff and, and it works well. But the difference being is I can like push on the top of the dirt and it's, it's just like a mat almost. It's, (laughs) I like it. I don't know if that's the way it's supposed to be or if, (laughs) uh, and also just to mention on that, it can, protect the root zone as well from pathogens potentially yeah and i, I i've talked about that a lot in the past and, okay. and it comes back to a simple space mutation like ecological niche theory and there's a lot of studies on this is if there's an open space it's really easy for biology in general to move into it whether it be a root zone or a coral reef or whatever we're talking about the root zones here you can inoculate beneficial microbes early on they're going to occupy the space along your roots to root actually engage and help feed those microbes to proliferate those communities. And so if there's an occupying presence of beneficials, it limits the space that actual 
potentially uh, the engagement space that any kind of pathogens could potentially engage in. So just from a physical barrier, I call it a bioshield. You're creating that, you're engineering that for your plants. There's some argument of out-competing and having, you know, too much life in there. Is there anything that you've seen on that? Like people run mycorrhizae and trichoderma and, uh, you know, say mammoth pea and such. Well, I have an opinion. I don't think that there's going to be uh, trichoderma can sometimes be pretty aggressive. And it's known to grow, but there's different functionality and there's different scales at which these different microorganisms grow. In general, you know, you think about collecting a handful of soil. I've literally identified over 10,000 microbial species in any one handful of soil in very healthy soils, nutrient cycling. Microbes are again, there's a ton of space to grow and, and, and kind of coexist. Mycorrhizae and trichoderma and bacteria in general do very different things. And they would cohabitat very well together, I think, in a precision indoor growing system or outdoor for cannabis, just like they would in soils as they do across almost all plants. And I wanted to briefly mention, too, real quick on that. So I've seen it possibly being uh, used as an enzyme, too. So because here's the deal is I actually use a separate enzyme and I'm thinking in my head, possibly if I don't have to, that might be something I might look at. Fair enough. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain that. As I've done this uh, a couple different times, but I think there's a little misconception. So enzymes are actually tools that microbials that microbes produce. They're not living; they're protein structures physically, but they perform specific functions. And so the idea is a microbe is microscopic. But think about the circular cell. Doesn't have hands. Doesn't have a mouth. So how does it feed? It absorbs nutrients through its membrane or through its cell wall. And to do that, it has to make the nutrients in the environment or the resources very, very small, or it won't be able to absorb that through its, through its membrane. Well, to accomplish that, it creates enzymes. And all microbes do this. Fungi do this. Bacteria do this. A lot of plants actually will exude some enzymes also into the soil and they can have it on their leaves, et cetera. But all they do is they squirt, they produce these protein structures, and they exude them. And they're called exoenzymes into the soil. And what these exoenzymes do is attack specific nutrients. So there's a lot of functional specificity. And they do specific things. And they'll break down, for example, there's nitrogen-targeting enzymes, there's phosphorus-targeting enzymes, sulfur, the like. So you can create general enzymes or specific enzymes for carbon. There's a lot of different carbon degrading enzymes for decomposition. Fungi do a good job of that. So if there's a uh, nutrient shortage, like if, if plants or microbes are starving for nitrogen, there's going to be a sensing that, oh no, we're running out of nitrogen because we're not taking up enough. And so that will trigger them to produce nitrogen targeting enzymes to support that outside their cell wall into the surrounding environment, those enzymes will function to liberate and make nitrogen that's in there, but un, not bioavailable, bioavailable, so the microbes can take it up. And that's why plants love microbes, because microbes liberate those nutrients, and then plants growing all around that area will be able to absorb the nutrients as well. And so do microbes produce enzymes? Absolutely. Mammoth tea produces carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus cycling enzymes, all microbes do. They do a great job. 
of the phosphatases. They do a pretty good job with the nitrogenases and the carbon degrading enzymes also. Again, microbes have evolved to have this suite of skill set because they need carbon, they need nitrogen, they phosphorus, and then they have some other mechanisms to deliberate or solubilize the different micronutrients and trace elements that they need to, to incorporate to maximize their, their health. So depending on what you're using your enzyme for, there may be other enzymes or other products that still may be useful for enzymatic. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't think that it's a bad thing. I think if you're using something that works, keep it. There's actually, there's an added value in doing that for can enzyme is, is the, the one example, when I first started learning to grow, this is years ago, all you do, you know, you don't think, you follow the recipe, you follow the guy, or you get yelled at, do this, follow the list, this is what you do, buy these nutrients. And so it, it was helpful to just follow the list. Initially, at least you can get a baseline, and then you can start learning what you don't know and mess stuff up on your own from there. And so that's kind of how this guy explained it to me. And uh, Canazyme was one of them. This guy was a big Canna fan. He did Canazyme and Rhizoconics with Canazyme. And that was interesting. So I've read what all this stuff is. Canazyme simply enzymes in a buffer. And they're carbon-degrading enzymes. And what they say is it's going to break down the carbon to reduce the amount of substrate that pathogens might eat or as a food source to reduce pathogen, pathogen pressure. At least that's what the label used to say. I think it still does. Regardless, the, the deal with enzymes that they're typically buffered. Structure equals function. Enzymes, like I said, it's very hard to visualize, are multiple proteins that are all wound together, all funky, but they actually work to perform a specific, specific function. But if they denature or change their form at all, they quit working. So they can denature and become non-functional very quickly. So in the bottle, they're in a buffer that maintains the pH at a very consistent, constrained uh, you know, range because that's the range that enzyme remains functional or remains intact. Once you add enzymes into the environment, if pH shifts at all, the hydrogen ions in the pH, the, a shift in hydrogen ions can denature enzymes very quickly. And so there's typically not a long persistence of enzyme functionality. So you have to keep on adding enzymes that have reliable function when you're adding them in a bottle. And that's all there is to it. And I think that's fine with, uh, you can manage what you can measure. And so you know what you're adding in, you get reliable results. Microbes, on the other hand, are like enzyme biomanufacturing facilities. And so if you add a microbe and that microbe can persist, it will keep on producing enzymes reliably into the environment. And yes, over time, those enzymes degrade and denature, micro will keep on making more. So that's how I think about the two. Thank you. That actually learned a lot just now. Uh, so my question then, and this comes from a lot of listeners, is that with inoculants, a lot of times you don't have to inoculate quite as frequently, I would say, as mammoth pee. Um, so one of the questions seems to be common is that you're always, you're always reintroducing, always reintroducing. Is there a reason for that? It comes down to management. You know, what we don't know, and to scientifically, it's very hard to measure the persistence of the microbes in the rhizosphere across a growing season. No, they're going to shift them. Maybe they'll increase in their density, maybe not. It's very hard to measure either way. And it's a destructive measure, and so you're not going to continue to sample and learn how to do this. What we decided is that we can, again, fascinated by this, you can 
manage, but you can measure. And if we could dial in on consistency, I think consistency is key for any precision agriculture, among many other practices, you can get consistent results. And if you have measurable results with a consistent practice, then you can dial that practice to, to manage results. And if we have a variable application rate once a week and you get great results, that's something that you can work with and you can dial back or you can dial more to see where you can push your plant response. And that's kind of how we thought about it. A one-time application, it's, we felt like there's, as environmental microbiologists, there's only like a million things that can happen and you don't have certainty how the microbes are going to grow or diminish or all the different conditions across uh, thousands and thousands of different growing you know, standards that are out there. And so we want to be efficient, but we wanted to have some type of measurable approach over time. And that's what we decided to do. I did notice with Mammoth P, again, this is for the listeners. I think a lot of people, when I read reviews and I read things people have talked about and how they've used it, it seems like you can't, it's one of those products that it's it's a fine tuner for sure. And so you can get the results and see the results if you've already know your grow and if you fine tune your grow. And I had, and so when I incorporated it that first year, even though I took it upon myself for my own feed schedule, I saw the results at the end. But for the people that don't, I, I often wonder if there's too many variables going on to begin with, whether they're using different genetics, different all different times, different schedules. Is it indoor? Is it out? For me, I've never used it indoor, so I can't even say how it works indoor. I do know this for sure. If you take away all the other benefits that I have from it, and I think this is maybe where I pick up my weight at the end, is that I'm an outdoor grower, and there's a lot of strains um, outdoors that come out fairly kind of airy, I guess. One thing I get from Mammoth P though, is I get very dense outdoor product. That leads me to this. And this is a question that one of our listeners had that I want to direct towards you is that I have never used it from beginning to end. I've always used it starting in flower and still had great results. Um, but I'm wondering if I couldn't have a lot better results if I used it all the way through. And, and this is actually one of the questions I want to plug this gentleman. His name is Onion Grill off IG. And his question is, as a small home grower, do I really need to use this product full cycle? Uh, he says, Hydro Shop Guy said I only needed to start using Mammoth just before flowering. Yeah, so I think it's a must-have during the flower cycle for pretty intuitive reasons. I used to recommend last week of edge, carry it through bloom. You're going to see great results. As we started having more uh getting more feedback from people in the, in the field, growers, cultivators who, you know, it's a, it's an experimental type of crop. People do what they want to do. They use it how they want to do it. At one point I asked the question, how, how are people using mammoth? I know what I'm saying. And so I pulled, I pulled a bunch of folks on, on Instagram and, and some other, and about 55%, we had about a thousand responses, about 55% of those, so they started it for veg and carried it through. And another 35% started it in cloning and carried it through. And so just the remainder was using it just in bloom, which kind of surprised me. For my early like results, when I was actually growing, because I had to see the results for myself. I was a new cannabis grower. I was very good at killing cannabis when I was a, a young man in my very early teens. And then 
as an adult, I learned how to grow. I got to grow. I dialed it in. And I saw great results. And I was working with uh, doing early rooting studies, vegetative studies, and all the way through. And I saw a positive result throughout. What I wanted to do, just like the, the technology, is have a precision message and, and just focus on the most important part of the cycle that I thought about value. So we focused on flowering. But we do see faster rooting, more rooting. We do see more biomass growth during the vegetative. And then you know the flower result. I think there's a cumulative effect. If we can stimulate and get more roots early on by using or incorporating mammoth, that alone is going to stimulate more vegetative growth, more nutrient uptake. Having that extra veg and healthier veg is going to carry along into flower. So I think intuitively, if we can get our plants healthier, roots healthier early on, there is going to be an added effect through through the bloom cycle if we use it all the way through. And so I do think so, but I see a ton. I talk with many, many growers who use it in, in, in flower. And they see great results. Alike. Another thing I see people do often is they'll use it as a rooting stimulant. They have other solutions for vegetative, and then they'll pick it back up in blue. And I, I love that. It gets it in early, early on, or at 0.6 mils per gallon at that early stage. You really don't even see a dip in the bottle. So that's just, that's almost a half to do. There's absolutely no risk, and there's nothing but upside. And then you can decide whether you carry it through, but definitely pick it back up in the in the bloom cycle i mean we've already started using it so i mean this year we're going to carry it all the way through the season to see the difference i i want to touch on just uh, a couple of things and it, i wouldn't call them negative it's just stuff that i've heard of and one is and i don't understand this one i don't understand either of them but one is shelf life i've had people complain that shelf life is short on your product which i don't understand because i believe it's a two-year shelf from manufacturer Years. Right. And by the time it hits a shelf and gets in your hands, you should probably at least have a year or, or more. Yeah. We, you know, we've had some pain and, and I can't reflect on, on the, on the experience of that comment. But what I do know is that in some cases people are buying bottles on Amazon and, and those bottles, they don't know where they're coming from. They're just Amazon stores that pop up yeah. and they'll end up receiving an old bottle. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, the pain for me and I've, I've been looking at that pretty intensely recently but it's been a problem for five years you know yeah <laughs> it's just a problem hey, it's not the problem but uh if you look at the reviews the comments are or the negative reviews for amazon they're up there they're all related to expired shelf life and so i think that when people are receiving the bottle two years is fine we have stores that have really high turn and we make a product very fresh and we get it out to the stores you know, the most recent versions, we we have our manufacturing down where it will hit a store shelf with within three months of manufacturing once the QC is accomplished. So we don't keep enough inventory. Uh, we, we have some real-time uh, modeling out where we want to make sure the product is as fresh as possible on the shelf. I just think that prolongs the ability to get used in the market for by, by cultivators. So... I think that's probably some pain points, and, and there's some sh there's some shops that have product that's older. But if that's ever an issue, you can call me directly, and I'll call the shop that you got it from, and I'll make sure that their product's uh, 
up to par and, and fresh on the shelf. Definitely have that conversation. Yeah, I've, I've never seen that problem myself. And I've, I've done some research on other products and it seems like two years, especially for microbes and inoculants seems standard. I mean, I... It's, it's long. It, it, if, if you can get two years, especially have a liquid product, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty formidable. Sure. If it's one year in general agriculture, one year is the benchmark. You have to at least get one year. And uh, we were able to get two. We wanted to double that. That was just kind of the standard we wanted to hit. So that's where we are. Yeah, yeah. And I, I used a bottle last year that was a year old and still got performance. So you know, I, I sure. mean, I, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't even care. But you know, some people, I guess, you know, they they're gonna care. So, um, and then this one, and now this isn't uh, meant to like um, shock here or anything. And this kind of was strange to me. But this was brought up by a listener when I was talking to him about mammoth and he said that mammoth, um, I don't know if I don't want to quote him, but I don't know if he said it acted like a PGR or it was a PGR in the sense that, um, well, it's essentially as a, as a PGR can be a plant growth regulator. And I said, well, why do you think that? And he said, it stemmed from the fact that you, you guys use alfalfa extract mm-hmm. and that even though it's a natural, PGR or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know exactly what you're okay. talking about. So this, this was a good alfalfa is known uh, to have trace amounts of tricantinol and tricantinols. Uh, a known PGR has been patented, you know, 40 years ago and already off the patent with tricantinol related products. So it's a natural source of tricantinols uh, registered or 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 um, classified as a PGR. Plant growth regulating uh, property, well known. I didn't know that when I picked alfalfa. <laughs> and so what, what I did is I, I was really keen on understanding nutritional quality of forage. It's one of the things I was like geeked out on as a research scientist. And I knew as a, because alfalfa was uh, a nitrogen fixing uh, plant. It actually absorbed nitrogen from the atmosphere. And I, I needed an organic food source to grow my microbes up that had relatively more nitrogen. And I knew I could acquire alfalfa easily because it was also used as a feed. I was like, well, I'll just use that as a substrate. We simply extract it to get uh, the nutrients and we just make a, a, a rich microbial food through that locally attained organic substrate. So I fit the criteria and they grow the microbes on it. And then after the fact, you know, within the year, I was like, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm starting to do my research. I'm like, ah. Oh. And, uh, and so I was like, fair enough. You know, it's a fair question. And so we did our own diligence. And I asked uh, our guy at the time, Peter, who, who we brought over from the university to start working in the company as well. And he's a really good scientist. I was like, man, we you address this? Grab some bottles from new lots, from old lots, super old lots, whatever we have, and just do a random selection and sample. And we'll do some tricantinol tests because I want to answer this question for uh, for whoever I'd asked, you know, I forget who was asking me at the time. I was like, I'll get to the bottom of it. But what we found was about two out of 10 samples had super low trace, very, very low part per billion traces of tricantinol. So it's true that there could be very, very small, very inactive amounts, uh, randomly, but we couldn't find it consistently at all. I'll say also early on, I didn't think it was that effect. That's one of the things I tested early on at the university. I thought, well, you know, microbes are growing in a rich substrate and they're making yummy stuff. And it's not, might not all be an active microbial 
mode of action, so to speak, but maybe the stuff that they're making as they're growing, that's what the plant's like, like a fertilizer effect, organic fertilizer effect. The NPKM mammoth is super low, but I wanted to test that anyway. So on early trials, I used what we know as mammoth, active microbial formula, and I used another treatment group where I actually filtered the microbes out, 0.2 micron filter, and just used a liquid portion, got rid of the supernate, which is just the physical live cells, moved that and used that as a treatment group. And that helped me answer, okay, is there a chemical or a biochemical or a fertilizer effect, the microbes, uh, that, 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 that the plants are responding to or is it the active microbial formula? And in every case, it was active microbial formula. And so I was, I was pretty convinced there's active microbes that were doing things, but I answered the question nonetheless because I, I wanted to know. And, you know, I kind of felt foolish, but again, can't know everything. I've never heard of Tricantinol before. Yeah. <laughs> I can hear into the company. And, then, and, and even some folks in Washington, this is funny too, I shared a version of that story with one of the shops, a great shop, Oxyterine, they're wonderful people. And then she was looking at me funny through the whole time. I was like, yeah, so no, it's not, it's not tricantinol. I'm convinced of that at all. There's, we can't really find it. It's an active microbe. She's like, I'm surprised you're saying that. And I was like, well, it's the truth. Why? And she's like, because everyone here is trying to figure out how to make tricantinol. <laughs> I was like, all right. Well, okay. For that. <laughs> well, it's funny because isn't alfalfa used in biodynamic agriculture anyway? I mean, they use that. Well, yeah, it's a good forage. Right. You know, because this plant sticks with nitrogen, it has a relatively low C to N carbon to nitrogen ratio, which means uh, based on the structure, it has a lot more nitrogen. And so it's, it's essentially a higher quality forage if you're looking for nitrogen. And in biodynamics, one of the, you know, one of the most limiting nutrients, plants have to have nitrogen. And so that's why you would use something like that. Across Timothy grass and different wheats and everything, uh, alfalfa, has much higher nitrogen. Well, and I know that I get a locally sourced organ-based, uh, it's called Seacoast Compost, which is it's just such a great compost. And they are a organic biodynamic compost. And they actually use uh, alfalfa and I believe chamomile. Is that what it is? There's another one that's biodynamic that they input in there. But so, What's the chamomile for? Someone was talking about that the other day. I forget what that's about. But they actually put both in their compost, though, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I love that. You think about, I've gotten more into thinking about this of recent. Plants have interesting properties. Yeah. You know, the reason that they do great stuff, and sometimes as a repellent, and, you know, there's all sorts of chemicals in plants, just like there's chemicals in us and microbes. And, and so if you can figure out how to release that, it's like the, nat, uh, the magic of nature, so to speak. Sure, absolutely. Uh, this newer product, the the biocontrol. Yep. I I have. I'm really excited actually about this. Please tell me it has some effect on aphids. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah, we have the results that suggest that third party results before we put it on the uh, uh, rip mites, white flies, and aphids. Awesome. We, we could not. We couldn't register it unless we had like really solid third-party data. So we spent a ton of money getting that validation and it's on there. Excellent. Well, and like you said, you know, even on the bottle, I mean, it should be organ safe 
where you know OLCC yeah. is pretty particular, and uh, you know they're always kicking everything off the list. So I'm I'm glad to see we have this is 25B. 25B exempt right. means, you know, there's no chemical. It's completely natural. It's sophisticated the way the science team, now I'm a microbiologist and I'm, I'm, I'm less of a biochemist and I know biogeochemical cycling, but I'm a slow guy. I'm a micro guy. And I, doing what I do now, I have my pet in a long time or transferred microbes or doing the stuff that actually I probably should be doing. Which is, <laughs> Being a scientist. Yeah. Yeah, field to field being a scientist, thank you. And uh, and they came up with a pretty cool idea to use plant chemistry as repellent. And it, it's not novel. There's a lot of products out there that do similar things. But they're very sophisticated the way they're thinking about time and the chemicals or chemical fractions within time or time extract that works really good to knock down and, and repel certain insects and, and different pathogens and, and microbes. And that's what they did. They concentrated a couple fractions of very effective time, uh, chemical fractions of time, and they concentrated that in that particular product. And so based on the application rate, it works. It knocks down well, but it works great as a preventative. It means it should keep them off. So I, I think it's cool. I, I wouldn't. I would have never made that personally because it's just not how I think. I'm always thinking about the microbes. That's what a great team's about, isn't it? Well, it's it's really good in the sense that I've already been using essential oils for for a few years now um, because they've been so effective. You know, I've been able to, for the most part, stay away from azadiractin, especially stayed away from neem, but, you know, trying to get away from azadiractin and some other basics, uh, just using... Um, the essential oils and occasionally maybe um, like a streptomyces or you know something some bacteria that's on the surface or something but yeah. but uh but I'm I was really glad to see this and let's be clear I hate to make dull this or dumb this down but this is not just thyme oil mixed in with some corn yeah. oil and thrown in a bottle I mean th this is a formula if you will yeah uh, that, that, that's why I wanted to bring that up it's, it's a lot more sophisticated right and when they when it first pitched to me I was I was like <laughs> really we're, we're, we're a essential oil company now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Sarcastic. I was a little disappointed. I know I've been calling. <laughs> and so when they explained, you know, how they actually identified really interesting fractions of time oil that they could identify and concentrate to use. And so it's using the plant biochemistry with precision. I was like, ah, I like right. it. All right. And it hooked me in. It's like, it, it is general. It's very specific. And, and I was, I was down with that. I thought it was very clever actually. Well, I'm down with it too. Like I said, it's kind of like bringing science to the essential oils because essential oils in general have worked well for me. Now, again, they are not something that are, especially essential oils that are just basic oils. You, you've got to use kind of, kind of use them a lot and they do smell. I mean, it smells like a candle out in the backyard sometimes. Uh, yeah. But um, but uh, it's worked well, so I'm really excited to use this. And last year, we had such a bad issue everywhere, the whole valley. There was a point in time in September where you couldn't walk outside and not really, I don't know if you've ever been on a lake where they have those little flies that kind of just fly around everywhere and they're just in your mouth and nose. And that's how the aphids yeah. got last year. Uh, so wow. It was that bad, yeah. And so 
I mean, you you couldn't go most places and shake a plant without it having kind of like these things kind of. And so prevention is key this year. <laughs> yeah. But I see this helping a lot of people. I see this helping a lot of people if people start using it properly right away, which I will. Um, yeah. But I'll be excited to see how well it works. It might be a lifesaver for us around here. And especially with our heat, yeah, you know, spider mites are huge around here. Uh, thrips are huge as well. And it seems like thrips, what do they yeah. have a backpack with a, a spider mite in it? It seems like every time I get thrips, man, there's a spider mite just heading on him, you know, behind him. So it's incredible. Isn't it? <laughs> there's nothing easy about agriculture. No, no. Uh, uh-uh. <laughs> so any recommendations using it though? I think on the bottle, it says use uh, an emulsifier. Um, pretty basic. Uh, yeah. Can you? Oh, yep, yep, yep. Super basic. I was going to ask you. Can you use a um, um, what do they call them? The um, uh, atomizers? Is that what they call them? Does yeah. it atomize? Okay. The, the, the yeah, at the recommended application, uh, the the team has used a bunch of different backpack sprayers and the atomizers. It works fine. Um, once a week, four weeks in a row, minimum, from a hardened clone. What we like to say is until. You know, early bloom until the the florets kind of form, it works wonderfully, and it works obviously into flower. But there's an oil base, and it's not preferable to necessarily spray flowers with the oil. I think you don't really need to. Uh, yeah, I I feel like though if you've done your your work through the first half of the season, or you know if you've kept up on your IPM properly, you probably should be able to get through the end. Okay. That's the idea. You just want to, it's a probability game. Right. Send your plants very clean and through the first couple of weeks of bloom. And then you can keep those plants, those, those, path, those pathogens or those pests off until you harvest. That's the idea. Absolutely. And I noticed some pests do go away, not all because some pick up, but I do notice that pests go away around here once the heat kind of calms down. You know, spider mites will settle down and stuff like that. So if you can, like you said, get through the first couple of weeks and then finish off in the cooler weather, then it seems to be okay. I, now, didn't I see you though on your personal or IG? I think weren't you gardening? I mean, you've been gardening. You have a, quite a nice garden at home, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I have a pretty. You'd be so happy. It's it's lovely. As soon as I, I, I I'm in this place now in Fort Collins, the first thing I did was go outside and create beds around the whole perimeter. And so now there's like 12 beds and I have my herb bed and all these different perennials and there's different lighting and different soil textures and soil types. And so I, I love it. And so you think that you think that I stay busy working, but in the summer I spend like literally 12 hours a day, probably Saturday and Sunday gardening. I just love it. I'll get my, I'll, I'll be dirt under the nails. <laughs> I don't know. Transplanting, going to get plants, plant swapping with folks, who knows? I just love yeah. it. And I have a bunch of like hemp, high CBD mm-hmm. that, that I experiment with through the yard also just to, just to do some environmental things, little stuff. I just have fun with I, it. You know, if I ever had property, I think I would do that. I would incorporate my cannabis just in the landscape. It's fascinating. It's fun. And, and the truth is you, you learn, like I, I'd have the same cultivar, the same strain. I was like, okay, I'll put one in. I'd actually plugged it in throughout the yard, and there's different water amounts depending on where you are, different sunlight amounts, and the soil is slightly different. And and some of the plants, same exact cultivar, have a ton of delimiting. Like I noticed that in one of the strains because of where it was, I guess, and other in other in other parts of the yard, I couldn't smell it at all. 
So I'm starting to think, huh, it, it, it brings this awareness of, oh, the environment somehow is triggering the terpene production in this drain and not here. And so then your mind just starts going crazy. I haven't forgotten about it. So, you know, it's just, I'm an innovator. Have you been like that since a kid, since a child? Hell if I know. <laughs> I guess <so. laughs> it, it's fascinating. You know, you think about the business stuff and, and who we are. And honestly, there's so many different personalities and so many different kind of types of people that if you can do it, if you can understand who your team is and where they like to spend their time, just conceptually, where, where they like to do, then you can find the right roles for the right folks. And it's just effortless. You know, we're not innovating. There is no time. There is no space. I'm just going, going, going. That's why I ended up spending 24 hours over a two-day period gardening. So I'm like, oh, oh wait a minute. It's quite dark. <laughs> you know, it started at 6 a.m. It's 9 p.m. I'm like, dang, I'm still in the garden. I guess I'll go eat. Wow. Just what you do. And so it's, I, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's the idea. It's just if people are in the role that they love to do, it's not work. It's just pure pleasure. And so that was the idea. We did this across the whole company. We realized who we are and how people think a little better. So it, it's kind of cool. That, that is cool. I, I'm, I'd like to see that culture too. When you were in Texas, I mean, you, you said your parents were, didn't they grow a few plants every now and then? Or what, what did you mention that? My, my step, my step brothers. Okay. Step-brother. I'm like, Texas is yeah. a dangerous place to be for that. <laughs> So yeah, I've gotten in trouble when I was, uh, when I was, that's what I'm talking about. You talk about how I feel about engaging this industry. Well, you know, as a young man, I got in trouble and, you know, I still have a a misdemeanor for cannabis. It's ridiculous. And and the incident was crazy, but it is what it is. And I'm looking back now and I'm kind of like, ha, in your face. Yeah. You know, I remember the first time I'll tell you, we have uh, greenhouses at Colorado State University that we use to do cannabis trials. And we had a whole greenhouse at the university. It was filled a sea of green. And it was a couple of years ago when we first had that. I walked in. I was kind of reflecting on my life, where I was. I'm like, I'm going to the university where I used to work to test, to look at the cannabis crop that we're growing. And I walk in, and that was the only one there. It was kind of early in the morning. And I was just like, victory! Yeah. I'm just, yeah! And just reflecting on the whole journey I've had at this point. Now we have cannabis at the university. Right. Uh, well, it, at that level, that's amazing to, to finally get it there too. And it was the 95% of people like you that ended up, you know, with any kind of charge. I mean, it seems like literally 95% of the people I interview, talk to, conversate with that are part of the culture have, you know, paid some sort of price at some point, big or small. Yeah. And uh, even my wife, you know, she's now works in the cannabis industry. And she's got a misdemeanor for cannabis. Yeah. She got it. Yeah. She got it six months before the laws went legal in Oregon. Uh, <laughs> so six months later, the same charge <laughs> that she got was now not a charge <laughs> for a whole quarter ounce. So what do you do? It was hilarious. Uh, and that still follows her today. She has a better chance of getting a job, you know, um, in obviously in cannabis than she would in anything else now. <laughs> Because <laughs> that haunts you, you know, even if it's legal. Did that ever give you PTSD after, you know, after that or whatever happened? I mean, did, did you ever like just have that look over your shoulder feel? Well, I, w- I went to jail for a partial joint. So what it comes down <laughs> That's to. That's Texas. Was as- That's how crappy that was. Dave Warren came and cuffed me. 
threw me in the back of the car and took me to jail. So there you go. It's like, okay, it's so silly, but yeah, it sucked at the time and had to do probation for six months, which sucked even worse at the time. Six months. But all that business. Uh, I moved on, but yeah, you know, I was finishing up a PhD and I was trying to do some, uh, I, I wanted to be a federal research scientist. That was just an aspiration I had. And I thought, oh my God, as you take, you, you're doing the inter- application and that question comes up. I'm like, oh, so there's a lot of anxiety around how that's going to be viewed. And I got through it. And then the last time I've ever thought about it, sometimes I'm talking about now, I don't know why it came up, but uh, I was trying to get my car and I was still a research scientist. So I was just getting in, uh, thinking about you know, working in some cannabis cultivation facilities and, and trialing mammoth. And it wasn't even called mammoth at the time. I just wanted to have access. And I thought, well, maybe it, and one of the solutions was like, well, you should go get a car. You can come in as a, as a, whatever it is, you know, I don't have one. I guess you can have tours now, but at the time I got a, a card, not a medical card, but a, but a cultivator, whatever access card. They had a, a question if you've ever been arrested. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get rejected. So I've been arrested, but they were pretty clear, at least in Colorado. It's not about what you did. It's about how you, how you characterize. It. So if it's a, if it wasn't a felony. Don't lie about it. Because if you lie and we catch you, you're not going to get, they're really, they're really trying to nurture, you know, tell all the truth. Yeah. Very nervous. I was like, yeah, I got my car. So, <laughs> nice. And after that, I was like, okay, I guess, I guess I don't have to worry about this anymore. I don't know. I think when, uh, when things went recreational here in 2015, there was a lot, a lot of people worried about those things because like I said, most everybody's got, and a lot of them with federal charges. And so yeah. thankfully, you know, OLCC hasn't made it too tough. <laughs> um, yeah. Like I said, actually easier than other professions <laughs> to, to <Yeah>. still get <laughs> in. <laughs> but yeah, they, well, they still pull your, they still pull your stuff, but, uh, and they still go through it with a fine tooth comb, but. Well, you know, leading up to that, that's what, that's one of the like perks of being able to support this industry and, and be a part of it growing, you know, it was insane. It's still insane in, in Texas. You know, it's it's not really okay. I was at the hemp show in Dallas, Texas, about a month ago, and people had big barrels of high CBD flour, uh-huh. like barrels of it. And I was like, man, <laughs> this is risky, folks. <laughs> they were because of the of the CBD and the hemp kind of coming in. They're, they're starting to well. Lack. Actually, I I've seen a three hundred pound shipment picked up here before at the usps of hemp uh-huh. <laughs> which i i wasn't even i wasn't even picking it up and it made me nervous but i was with the farmer that was picking yeah. it up <laughs> and uh but you know it was it was stuffed full of coas you know they had all their lab analysis paperwork in each box and everything was labeled properly and blah 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 but still man i mean it smelled and looked just like any other high THC cannabis out there. So that's right. Yeah. Make me a little nervous. Time to change it. Time to change it. <laughs> Does Colorado like that? It's pretty relaxed. I imagine. You know, it's funny. My mom still uh, lives in West Texas and, and right when it became legal in Colorado and I was still at the university. So, you know, this decade, she called me up out of the blue. Like, Hey mom. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, I know it was a Tuesday. And she's like, well, have you seen the news? And I was like, no, what's going on? She's like, 
everyone in the world talking about it. Colorado just turned legal. And I was like, huh. <laughs> I was like, well, it's just a Tuesday here. <laughs> 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 and so it made me aware that the rest of the country was kind of freaking out about it. But in Colorado, it's like, you know, the block that you go down, that you know if there's a grower on that block because they, their carbon filter went out. <laughs> it, didn't <change. laughs> it didn't change much for Oregon either. It just, I think was a novelty thing to go into a store, but you know, the, the medical market had been yeah. going on for so long and there was already quote unquote dispensaries and such. So, I mean, yeah, it was just, just another day. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. Beautiful. Thanks. I really appreciate the support very much. And if there's anything we can do, just let us know. I appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot. So thank you so much and talk to you soon, sir. I'm Lady Sativa and you've just listened to The Dirt Show. If you liked this episode, please like, share, comment, and go to organrooted.com where you can subscribe to us on your favorite platform like iTunes, Pandora, or Spotify. Also, check out our YouTube for videos and IG, Facebook, and Twitter for all our updates. Thank you for listening. Thank you.